0: hello story seekers i'm ben i'm nico and you're listening to the tiny bookcase our guest for this episode hails from aberdeen holds a phd in clinical epigenetics and writes short fiction as well as fantasy novels The first two books in his epic fantasy series, The
1: Rot Storm, are out now, with the third coming in August of this year. We'd like to warmly welcome Ian Green. Hello, Ian. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me.
0: No problem at all. The Rot Storm. That's an incredible name for a series. I love it. Where where does that sort of derive from?
2: Um, Well, there's a kind of arcane storm, which is uh, the focus of the trilogy, really, that's um, basically slowly... Um, destroying an empire and uh, and uh, and raining down just horrific acid rain and um, uh, endless lightning and spawning monsters inside it and all of this and so you've got these people who just live at the border of this trying to kind of hold back these waves and waves of endless monsters and so there's a lot of this trilogy about where that came from. It's kind of this like I don't know this mage made um, climate apocalypse almost over this country which um, uh, is having all kinds of Effect. But uh, yeah, I mean, a few people said it was quite off-putting. Um, really, you know, r- r- rot is not necessarily something a lot of people want in their uh, their, their sword and sorcery stuff. I don't know, mate. It's
0: Any, I, yeah, anything that makes you stand out on the bookshelf, I reckon. Uh, I mean, maybe which, that one does.
1: I don't know if you're a Warhammer fan like I am, but the Nurgle player in me
2: got excited <laughs> just from the title. <laughs> so, oh, I, I, I am. I've been, um, I've been uh, holding myself back from Warhammer for many, many. Years and um, but the last sort of three years, which has coincided with writing these books, actually, I've, I've slowly descended into into the madness of it. So um, yeah, the oh, I mean, rot and corruption is there. I mean, there's lots of good stuff you can do with rot and corruption.
0: Definitely, it's a sign of life, isn't it? Um, so you've also that we didn't mention it in the introduction, but you've you've also uh, you, you won a, a radio competition for opening lines in fiction, right? Yeah, yeah, that was actually um a
2: while ago. Got um back in twenty fourteen, I won a, a competition in in for BBC Radio Four, which was their opening lines competition for short stories from new writers. So at that point, I hadn't really been published anywhere. I just um, so that was my first sort of big, big thing I managed to get out there. Um,
0: yeah. So so that was the sort of you you started through short fiction and went up into that you continued on into novels, is that...
2: I mean, yeah, I, I kind of thought that seemed the, the most sensible way to go about it in terms of figuring out how the hell to write properly um, and, mm. and write well, yeah. you know, you know, it's very... I had lots of ideas for sort of epic series and um, intricate long novels, you know, like like Russian-style doorstep novels. Um, <laughs> but realistically, at that point, my experience was so limited. Um, so I, I figured it's, it's a really good way to try out... You know, you can try a dozen different genres... And you can try all these different voices and different techniques and little little things to play with. Because um, if you're going to experiment with that at a novel level, you know you might take a year, you might take five years to write a novel. And and so if you're experimenting with something new at that level, and then it turns out it's crap, then you you you've, you're kind of burning yourself.
0: Yeah, that's the uh, you just described my worst fear of uh, the <laughs> novel that I'm currently writing. That <laughs> that is spot on exactly what I fear. Um say, so it's you- pretty hard to home. Yeah. So, um, so the so obviously the the series is called The Rockstorm, but then they've also got quite uh, cool individual names, haven't they? You've got the Gauntlet and the Fist Beneath for the first one. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and then um, the Gauntlet and the Burning Blade is the second book, which came out last summer, and the Gauntlet and the Broken Chain is the third book, um, which uh, is out this summer. Um, but which I, I love these titles, but uh, I I really, I only realised much. Later, after the fact, that if you have really long titles, they don't really give you any artwork for your book because um, there's no there's no room. <laughs> yeah. so, it's, so it's just all like, it's like, like it looks really cool. It's really cool, like you know, um typeface and everything. It looks really dramatic. Like I, I, I love the covers, but I do kind of want, uh, you know, Boris Vallejo style '80s D and D on the front. You know, um, so it's so. Um, my...
0: Rosetta, big big boys on the front. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. whatever
2: I do next, I need to has to incredibly short, snappy titles, so there's lots of room for art. Just call it rot and yeah. then
1: have
0: yeah.
2: loads of space.
0: Yeah. That's great. Probably a better title um, have you done uh you've done maps and stuff for your world, right? Or if I Yes, yeah, so I did yeah. them
2: all um I did them all myself, um which um because I've been doing Wow. Yeah, well, I've spent a hell of a lot of time playing D&D and um, <laughs> making maps and, um, wow. and you know, making, <laughs> making, making maps for campaigns and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so I actually, before that, I had a subscription to uh, Incarnate. Oh, yeah, I've used to Incarnate
0: before. Okay.
2: Yeah. And I, you know, I I always draw crappy maps. And I, I, but I've always felt really bad because, um, you know, if you look at uh, Lord of the Rings, say, and you look at the maps in front of Lord of the Rings, you're like, God, these are beautiful and, like, beautiful intricate penmanship and In my handwriting my drawing is terrible and but then <laughs> someone got me uh, a gift of like um the the art of lord of the rings which has loads of the original sketches of the maps and tolkien's original maps are
0: crap they're yeah, like no, you know s-
2: sketched on the back of an old essay or whatever um he's, and
0: he was not a particularly talented artist it was he, they were lovely things but they were yeah he's not he wasn't amazing yeah was he?
2: But, but, you know, but then you can get someone else to do it properly after that. So so that's what I, so I was kind of like, that I, I allowed that myself to, you know, just make a crap version. And then I kind of made it an incarnate and I sent it to the publishers and I was like, yeah, so what, um who are we going to get to make the map? Like, who's your map guy? And we are like, oh, no, these are, these are, these are good. We'll use these. <laughs> so um, oh, the, the maps they have which to... are in the book are my ones.
0: Yeah, did they have to like uh, get a, a different kind of license th- for Incarnate to, to um, do that? Or? So you can
2: get if you have a pro license with Incarnate, then you can use the um, use the maps you create for commercial.
0: Right, that ventures. makes a hot, hip. Yeah. It's, hot it's, tip. It's, yeah, it's
2: only like twenty quid a year or something like that to get a pro oh, license, that's... and it means that whatever you create from there, you then have a license to use for commercial. So if you are making like if you are making like a D and D module to sell, then you know if you have a pro license, you can um, uh, use maps from that. But um, yeah, oh, it, it's.
0: That's that's all up in the air now, isn't it? With the Wizards of the well, Coast. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean,
2: we're not doing the OGL two episodes in a row. <laughs> no, bro, and, we're not doing that yeah, yeah, that's let's, let's, let's <laughs> a good of I mean, but this is the thing: is like, but so I kind of went in and was like, oh man, I got I got a really cool publisher. Like these guys publish some really great science fiction fantasy authors. I'm going to get some cool cover art. I'm going to get some awesome maps. And then we were like, there's no room for cover art, and uh, your maps are all right. <laughs> so.
1: I uh, I I saw it somewhere on the internet, and thanks to reels and shorts and all those things. I don't know who makes any of the content I consume anymore, but it was a really good thing for making fantasy maps, which is to take a massive bit of paper and a bag of rice and just sort of spill it on and then draw around sort of the main mass and around the loose grains that have come out as islands and use it for your
2: topography. It was really weird, but very cool. It looked amazing, but I mean, that's the sort of thing where like that now gives me a headache because like I've done the maps for published. I can't, I can't now make the maps better. So the maps are kind of locked in. Um, <laughs> and, and even when I do like other stuff, if I, if I do other stuff in that world and it's like, I've made the map, that is now what that looks like. Um. so I can make, yeah,
0: it's, I think uh, I seem to recall something about an interview um, or maybe I, I heard Joe Cromwell say at a, at a con once, but I think he said that he deliberately didn't do maps. For that reason, like he didn't want to be tied because he didn't trust his geography or something. It was I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I I can see that point of view for sure.
2: That's like the exact opposite of my point of view. Is that (laughs) if I don't have a map, then I will cheat. You will cheat, uh, yeah. Yeah, if I'd much rather have like my crappy geography. um, The good thing is, it's all you know. um, There's quite a lot of magical forces at play. So if any, if anyone's like, well, actually, this this type of escarpment would never exist near this sort of thing. It's like this is literally a world um, full of you know magical giant snakes that are going to you know turn you to stone and, and eat your liver so don't oh, worry yeah. too much about the if the limestone erosion is 100% <laughs> accurate and, and, yeah. but yeah I, I i think um if if you don't have a map then it can be very tempting to retrofit um the the map to fit the story you want as opposed to fitting yeah. the story around the world which which t- to me for me that was kind of a way of adding in a layer of believability it's like oh no actually it would be really handy narratively if that was right here but that's not where that town is they need to spend a day and do this and makes it all a little bit more believable in that there's slight delays and there's slight mismatches or or people i don't know i think it makes it more believable maybe it doesn't work (laughs) and i'm just wasting my time drawing maps i quite quite (laughs) like drawing maps i
0: think that's fine it's your it's your art you can do it as you please I, i i reckon whichever works best well, this has been lovely so far, but I think we should probably get into some story uh, some story trouble. Um, regular listeners know how it goes, but uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, there will be three stories told in this episode. All of them have been written to the same shared prompt. This week, the prompt is Hot Sauce, and Nico will be going first. Hot Sauce.
3: Hank Lobar had earned the title Chili Bane, and Lord Almighty was he proud of it. The Puxatawney County Chili Cookout was a staple as old as Lincoln's Stovepipe. But in all those long years, they'd never faced a man so mean, nor so resilient as old Hank. Now, in some communities, Hank would have been revered as a hero. They might have reckoned he was a folk legend. The man with the iron tongue, they might have called him or old stone-belly. But Hank was the worst of all things. A real asshole. He had gone out of his way to hurt the feelings and livelihoods of every Puxatoni resident. He pursued the course of social demolition so doggedly he had managed to flip the county on its ass. He was a lawyer and a real low-down one, too. Through his highfalutin' language and clever twistin' of a town that hadn't updated a drop of paperwork since Spurs were in fashion, and hell, round here they still were, he came to own a good slice of everything that wasn't nailed down. Suddenly, a lot of folk had two dozen less acres, and a bill from the lawyer. But Puxatawney folk are good folk honest as the dirt they farm, so they never did anything back to the man. He must be mighty sad, they said, awful lonely up in that big house on his own, but with his wife going missing and all. Never once left a footprint in the local bar, or scraped a plate in Mary's diner, so when he did appear, just once a year for the chili cookout, they still welcomed him as neighbor to his face. They called him a miserable fat ass behind his back, of course. And every year, he did the same thing, too. Going stall to stall, he dipped his spoon in every chili. Took a real big mouthful of each. And every year, he said the same thing. You call that a chili? I can barely taste it. No matter if it was Grandma Pillins lugging a great cauldron of chili in her 90-year-old arms or... Young Billy Robusk stewing up the first deer he ever shot himself. He was the same mean bitch. Every damn year, he would tell them how bad their chili was, how weak, how lacking in spice. said last year, of course. That year, it made near the whole round, staining everybody's move worse than his custom silk bib. A trail of grumbling misery followed him as he laid his eyes upon something that shocked him. A new face. A stranger stood deep at the end of the fair. His hand-painted black sign read, El Diablo. Hank chuckled to himself. He loved it when they tried to make bold claims. It felt so much better to crush their dreams then. He pulled up real close to the fella. He was handsome. His white mustache curled up neat to the tips. A tan gallon in jet black suede to match his suit. It shielded him from the sun's glare and the unwarranted eye contact. You know what El Diablo means, fella? Hank asked, his voice brimming with smug energy. He doubted any of these hicks could even mumble a word of Spanish. I rightly reckon I do, sir. Why, it's the devil himself. The man tipped his hat back as he raised his eyes to meet Hank's. Can I offer you a bite of chili? Hank squirmed a little. The man's gaze was penetrating, not that glossy idiocy of the locals. He feared losing his alpha status, but he reckoned he could claim it back with a simple mouthful of chili. If you can call it chili, I'll be the judge. Hank dipped his spoon in the big pot and slurped a mouthful down. It was good. Lord, was it good. But it wasn't hot, and that he could use. I'm afraid your chili leaves a lot to be desired. Learn a little about heat and then try again next year. He wore a face like a rattlesnake when he said it. All fangs and menace. But the stranger didn't even blink. Oh, hoss, this is just the base. You seem like a connoisseur. How about I let you try something special? The stranger produced a small black bottle and let it plop on the table. The label said, Sin. Hot sauce? Hank asked, incredulous. No hot sauce had ever even given him a pause. What kind of chili it got in it? Family recipe, I'm afraid. Can't tell you. Hank screwed up his face, but pressed on, looking for an angle. What kind of a name is Sin? Well, something of a legend, fella. They say the sauce knows your heart. A righteous man might drink the whole bottle and takes nothing but cool, clear water. But a man with a sin in his heart, well, it'd burn him right up, if you could believe such a tale. The stranger wore a grin that put fear in the heart of Hank. He wouldn't let himself be stopped, though. All right, then. Let's see how full of sin I am. He guffawed unnaturally. The stranger just wore his smile. He watched as the smug Hank dropped one, two, three, and four drops onto a spoon of chili. The stranger just smiled on. When the spoon popped into Hank's greasy mouth, the stranger just wore that bobcat grin. As the sweat began to bead and his smug face faltered, the stranger let his lips part and his teeth show. As the wisps of smoke began to curl out of old Hank's mouth, the stranger began to laugh. As his head took to flame, his eyes boiling in their sockets, he roared with laughter. And as the charred remains of Hank's head fell in on themselves, I wiped my hands clean on his jacket. Awful lot of sin you're carrying, mister. Don't worry, you'll finally have lots of like-minded neighbors real soon. Hank never set foot in the local bar or scraped a plate at Mary's diner. And when he didn't show up to the chili cookout the next year, no one seemed to mind.
0: What a tale! What a tale, man! Fantastic. Glad you enjoyed it. The voice, like Sam Elliott <laughs> incarnate. Oh, it was luxurious. The voice. Say, yeah, the, the,
2: the voice. Sam. Um, uh, the first ten seconds threw me. I, I was not
0: expecting that that level of a uh, that level of commitment. <laughs> it, it was almost. It was almost too good, and it, this is still a compliment, but it sounds like it's a backhanded one, right? But it right. sounded—it it was almost like the start was like an R-rated canned chili commercial, <laughs> and yeah. and and then it, and then it kind of like and then it takes on the the sort of dramatic notes that it's gonna it's gonna you know pick up and run with. Yeah, I loved it. Also, the use of um, I think you said the place is Punxsutawney Punxsutawney Chili Cookout. Yeah, um, that immediately that that gave me uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, vibes because it's, yes. it's mm, yeah. Tony um, so you might want to consider finding if if you don't want the Groundhog Day narrative implications, you might want. Yeah. to. but it, that's a very small note. Is all I I I'd mean, say. Ge- that
2: I guess that does have the um, the kind of supernatural connotation already beginning in the reader's mind. Maybe that's true. That's um, true. Yeah, which, it, yeah, yeah, I love the kind of like fable esque twist it took where it, it's it. it it's one of those stories where the latter quarter of it, you know, the 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 final that final chunk could go in any absolutely any direction. Mm, um yeah. and, and so the fact that it went full on um you know, uh folktale um sitting around a campfire yeah. eating you you could be sitting around a campfire, you know, in the Midwest eating eating chili, hearing yeah. someone tell that story.
0: I like yeah, that's a good point. I like that.
1: I think you'd stop at a certain point eating it, wouldn't you? You'd go, oh, yeah, I'm you'd right. sort of
0: have have like the bottle of hot sauce halfway to your chili, and then sort of put it back down, wouldn't you? Um, I loved the animalization that you did for the descriptions of people's faces. Yeah, so, you know the uh, the face like a rattlesnake and the bobcat grin; these kind of things, they were really good. The the one note that I would give on the face like a rattlesnake, I think that's enough. It's a very impactful line. Yeah, you then carry on to clarify what that means. Not yeah. necessary. Yeah. Just, yeah, I think I'll make you right. Yeah. Um, I think, because I think the, you, um you don't do that for the Bobcat grin, I don't think. So yeah, uh, yeah, that And that works. I, I wanted a little bit
2: more um chili, if that makes sense. There was a lot of, like in in terms of obviously there's a lot of um uh talk about the spice levels and uh, because that's um you know the guy's whole thing. But uh, but the you know I wanted a little bit more sensation of what the chili cook-off you know, feels like, like, like the kind of billowing steam of, for coming off of all these different vats boiling. You know, some people yeah. with beans, some people with mints, some people with, you know, be, be all these different spice mixes and flavors and all this sort of stuff. And and also j- just, I think, a, a few sentences darted through. To, because what's happening is you're, you're able to very easily conjure up what a chili cook-off looks like because yeah. we all have an, a mental image of what that looks like. Yeah. And you can... You can maybe expand on that a tiny bit to just draw the reader even further in, because then it makes that juxtaposition when suddenly it switches. You know, it's, it's children running around; it's, it's people. Apart, aside from this guy's an asshole, everyone else is having a good time. It's, um, so, when, a, yeah, yeah,
0: I, I think that's a very good point uh, because you do go into like roughly what they look like. You know, the the spurs are still in fashion there, and yeah, that kind of thing a bit more a bit more description on the food would be good. Um, I they just to build on that the custom silk bib that he wears yeah is top level characterization through objects that is such a disgusting object for somebody to own like what an opulently ridiculous <laughs> thing to do and it's probably you know it's you know it's going to be sort of um, monogrammed and stuff as well and it's and then he's probably going to throw it away cuz yeah, it's, I mean, it's silk it's is not going gonna... to it's so no, terrible material I for it out, yeah. <laughs> yeah no it's it, that that's gone that's that's no longer a useful item after that point
2: I think uh,
1: it's yeah, I think it's a good point i think there's like there's a lot gone into characterizing Hank, this terrible bastard, but mm. the the town I've kind of relied on it having its own life with few senses, but yeah, I think spending some word economy on on giving the town a nice vibe that he can cut through like a shark yes. through water Yeah. That's so, good. So how, many, how many take words much.
0: did you end on? Yeah, how many how many words did you have left to play with? In that? Oh, I still
1: as... had three hundred, yeah, three hundred words to play okay. with. Okay, so all right, th- yeah, that's that's a couple of paragraphs to get that out.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think because the the story is well contained inside the structure, so it's not one of those ones that feels like it needed more storytelling, but it it potentially needed, as as we've just said, like a bit more, yeah, Flash. yeah, yeah. Um, but overall, really, really liked it. You know, this man with the iron tongue, this asshole dude, there's, there's something about characters that, and, and people in real life that need to shit on others to feel better about themselves. That yeah. is so everyone, everyone knows the disgust you feel when you encounter someone like that. And yeah, that, that would, it, it spoke to me quite a lot. You know, I've known people like that in my life and I, and I, I recoiled from this man that you were describing, um, yeah, that was good. And and the concept of the of the, the heat being based on their personal sin, that's a good that's a good dramatic turn. I like that. Hmm, very good. Yeah. Well, yeah. Really interesting. Really um yeah. Really fun. Fantastic. Well, thanks Dick. Um thank you. Ian, do you fancy giving us a story?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um a bit worried tonal shift here, but that's fine. Let's let's <laughs> <get a laughs> go with like... a tonal shift. Yeah, it's always good. Uh, this one is also called Hot Sauce. Napalm burns between 800 and 1200 degrees Celsius. Wood, so ambiguous, so all encompassing a term, will ignite at, say, 360 degrees Celsius. The Holistic Health Centre was panelled in wood, outside and in. It had wooden desks, wooden chairs, glass doors for the outside world, but warm wooden doors inside. Pictures had been in the local paper. The floor was carpeted, there were cameras probably, but we would be there minutes at most cloaked in night and black. To learn how to make napalm, we went to the library and spent an afternoon in historical narratives of guerrilla warfare. We found what we needed in a book in the Vietnam War. You could find all of this stuff on the internet in seconds, of course, but nobody ever records what you're reading in a quiet corner of a city library. Neither of us knew enough about computers to make certain we wouldn't be, at some future time, tracked or traced or tripped up. Also, the library in St Andrews was within a minute's walk to a quiet pub with a pretty barmaid. Stephen and I made the first batch in the back garden whilst William was out at one of his band practices. We mixed petrol and styrofoam in a metal bucket until it had a seminal consistency and coloration, and threw lit matches at it from as far as we could. When eventually one of our matches found its way into the maw of the bucket, the fire was enough to destroy it utterly, the cheap metal gone, and have us scurrying for an extinguisher, grinning like buffoons. You have to use an extinguisher for napalm, water won't help at all just run off or disappear into steam. Later we made enough to sit, fill six wine bottles, filling them with funnels and waiting like Gnostics with our legs crossed in the cold grass of the back garden as the napalm slowly dripped and filled, smoking nervous cigarettes with the winter sun probing at our corneas. We corked them and left them in the garage, hidden. The letters we wrote on a second-hand typewriter bought in a thrift store in Edinburgh with cash, the paper we lifted from its packet with thick-headed tweezers and pushed into place, After twelve, the ribbon began to run out of ink, leaving unacceptable skipped vowels, drunkenly slurring what we wanted it to say. We were happy with twelve. We took the typewriter to the back garden, and with a hammer we broke it to its constituent parts, letter keys like ribs jutting at awful angles in the grass. We gathered the pieces into two plastic bags and left them in separate skips, one in Cooper, one in St Andrews. This game of unwarranted paranoia, of brinksmanship. I always presumed he would stop at some point. Letters read as follows. To whom it may concern, we have burned your false promises. The draft I wrote was a page long, but when I showed it to him, Stephen just shook his head and said, Brevity is the soul of fucking with people. The more words, the more there is to misconstrue. Self-adhesive stamps, envelopes with prestigious addresses, all sorted and ready to go. And then in the dark, in the trees, we readied ourselves. Dressed all in cheap black cotton so that any tell-tale thread would lead nowhere. We went to the door in our homemade balaclavas, me with a crowbar, Stephen with the bottles and the matches. It was dark inside. I made to break open the front door, but it fell open at the touch of my crowbar. Everything was silent and we looked at each other. He shrugged and went inside, uncorking the first bottle, and I stood at the door. I was meant to be watching for security, for police. I was thinking, why would the door be unlocked? Through the veil of adrenaline, I put it down to luck. Carelessness. The first bottle was empty, all over the reception desk. There were four treatment rooms, a bathroom and office. He slowly walked around the perimeter of the central corridor, shaking each bottle as he would, recalcitrant ketchup, gobbets of dense, semi-opaque gloop forming a trail under each of the doors for treatment rooms one, two, three and four. A dull light shone under the door of the unisex toilet, in hindsight. Similar pale light spilled out around the wood of treatment room four. At the time it meant nothing. At the time, whoever forgot to lock the doors forgot to turn off the lights. Why would anyone be there at 3am, after all? Another fun fact about napalm is that it rapidly deoxygenates any available air and sends out spumes of carbon monoxide. This will cause suffocation swiftly. Stephen kept two bottles for the office, covered every computer. Napalm eats through plastic, voracious, unfulfilled. He ignored the toilet. Thank God he ignored the toilet. When we were together again in the doorway, both breathing hard, he held a match in his hand. It's, it's not too late, I said. He looked me in the eyes, face hidden between the black wool. Expression impenetrable. I could hear my body, the rush of blood in my ears. Everything seemed to be too much in focus. It's too late, he said, and lit the match. Later. Later. The paper said... The victims weren't touched by flame. The, the, the paper said that the smoke may have knocked them unconscious before the water in their isolation tanks began to boil them alive. Sensory deprivation. A holistic cure for insomnia. Funded by our taxes. The paper said a lot of things. I pictured my grandmother making a thick broth, dropping a hunk of meat and bone into the pan. I pictured my sister making hot sauce, a bottle of coke and a handful of chilies cut fine, salt, peppers. The isolation tanks were full of just enough water to float in gently, in the darkness, to try to sleep, to try to rest. The tanks were full of salt to increase the buoyancy, which would increase the boiling point as well, as luck would have it. The tanks were full of hope and flesh, insomnia had driven each of those people to try it. The nurse in the bathroom managed to run out before the flames took her. The pan for my grandmother's broth, the meat would fall from the bones and chunks, until it was clear white. It was always delicious. My sister's hot sauce. She reduced down the ingredients, chilies and dried peppers and onions, salt and pepper, boiled and simmered and bubbled until it was all concentrated and there was flavor. Flavored planted into glass bottles, tinted red.
0: Whoa, that was Whoa,
1: astounding. Now.
0: <laughs> the oh, uh, the way that you told it as well. That like uh, very sort of calm but fearful of the truth kind of way that you processed the story it was really cool it was very i was felt very absorbed by that it was was well written and well performed thank you Um, the uh yeah
1: i've I've written down a few things and then i just Mm. i mostly just wanted to listen so my apologies (laughs) that my notes stop about halfway through um one of the things i wrote down was uh, it's game of unwanted paranoia of brinksmanship, yes, that is a delicious little phrase oh, thank you it it says so much in a relatively tiny amount of words
2: oh it's very kind of you it's um yeah i uh yeah it trying to trying to convey a lot of connection between two characters in such a small space is um can be quite difficult but.
0: It is, it, and but I think you managed it. Definitely, there was this sense of, um, you know, the the conflict between them. You know, one of them just pushing just a little bit further than was comfortable for the other, um, but both of them feeling quite sort of um, radicalized in what they were doing. Mm. Um, there were there were tons of uh, lovely tons of phrases. I the first one I wrote down was "winter sun probing us at corneas." Now that's such a, um, a clinical way of describing that, but it's also quite whimsical still. And being able to balance that is very difficult, I think. And I think you managed it pretty much throughout. You know, lots of the descriptions about the napalm, you know, the semi-opaque gloop and this kind of thing. It was all tonally very relevant whilst being very specific, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I Um, guess what
2: I was aiming for there was this the not taking it seriously the the the, mm. the the idea that you know the way things are described like it's a it's a jape it's a it's like you know this funny gloopy liquid this like all these things it's not um it's not being given the actual gravitas it deserves yeah. and it's just the, yeah. and this idea of this escalation of how you know how far can you actually go when you don't seriously um really embrace what you're doing and you just allow that sort of fun and whimsy and like you know you're setting fire mm-hmm. stuff in a bucket in your garden like what how can you go down those steps towards um you know yeah uh, uh, yeah. yeah
1: i mean the, so, the great example of that on. they're not taking it seriously is that they're smoking well, they're bottling, yes. yeah yeah <laughs> like this complete lack, lack of, of- Awareness of your, but it's it's not long after there was a line I wrote down I absolutely loved which was no one records what you're reading in a quiet corner in a city library. Like to be um... that aware and paranoid at one end, and then to just brazenly light a cigarette and around opened containers of
0: napalm. It's I I may have missed something there, but I think I think that the implication of the bit about in the in the library is that that's how they eventually were caught after the story. Is that would that is that accurate, or did I did I imagine that?
2: I don't think that's um, that's 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 clear from this. Um, yeah, no, no okay. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. But um... that's that's fine. That's fine. It's, I, no, it's interesting. There's a good talking point though because in to
1: me, he'd never been caught. Right, I that's how it felt to me that this was like a like the, like the absent like end of life confession of an adult mind is how it Oh felt. fascinating.
0: Oh I definitely saw it as like um for for me anyway it was like a you know it was like a middle aged man looking back on uh, an absolutely horrible thing that he did sort of semi accidentally as a as a you know a teenager probably likely from a jail cell um because we know from the way that they they're so painstaking about whether they break up the typewriter and hide it that they are trying to cover their tracks and then there's a bit earlier when it it's they the uh, the narrator confesses that they never considered that someone might be checking local library records. So I, I'd sort of put those two things together as like they'd covered themselves very firmly in one way, you know, with the the kind of clothes they were wearing and all this stuff, and then they'd been tripped up by a library system. Um, but that's I, it's one of the it's a sign of a good story, isn't it? When you can yeah come away with it with very different um, very different angles.
2: Yeah, I, I like um, that it's not. Um one thing I wanted to do is make the characters in it quite, um, which I, I think I could do more so, make them quite uh, opaque. You know, you don't, the narrator, you yeah. don't know anything about. You you know absolutely mm-hmm. nothing at the end of this. So so who you picture in that context, you know it's too young. I mean, I think actually there's a couple of things I'd maybe change in this, like having the, the, just read through this now, you know, um, the idea of the narrator at this point is, is a, you know, it's it's a young man. And another young man making napalm you know how names descriptions anything else about him you don't know and it doesn't matter it's just it's just two young men doing something very stupid
0: yeah, yeah. which is something that i'm sure we can all uh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah sort of uh, recognize a little bit within ourselves and our past but um the uh, i've got to mention the uh, brevity is the soul of fucking with people because i'm going to use that i am yeah. actually going to say that to other people <laughs> so so uh thank you for that that's very cool um and finally um i really enjoyed opening with the uh respective burning properties of napalm versus wood mm. um that's a delightfully sinister way to open a story especially with the uh it it's like a like a pratchett
1: footnote with the yeah. uh, wood which is a term that covers a way too broad a spectrum <laughs> like that that little moment of oh, this person is talking about this in a very unusual way, but it's not a straight line. Mm. And that that kind of bled through the whole narrative and, for me, really gave it a little bit of, little bit of something extra, almost like adding, you know, like, like a, a, a hot sauce, sauce yeah, to yeah. a food.
0: Yeah, um. very, very nice, very good. <laughs> um, do you feel that that came from a place, you, uh, like, did you feel deliberately quite angry about holistic health centers when you were writing this or did that um
2: no i i've been i don't know i've been trying to i've been i've been working on some projects which um are looking at kind of how people justify direct action to themselves um so i'm I'm working on a sci-fi novel at the moment which is a a lot about it's basically you know it's it's like a a biopunk book basically you know it's it's uh, i love biopunk so it, it but it's a lot of like when is it right for you to take direct action? How do you justify action to yourself? When is it, you know? And, and I, I don't, I, you know, my background's in um, in science, so I, I do have some reasonably strong views about holistic health centers, sure, and, and, as, and especially, you know, if they're being funded by public money, things like this. But, um, yeah, but, yeah. but you know, at what point do we allow ourselves to take act? what do we view as appropriate action? You know, when is it? What when is an action clearly too far? and when and you know you can walk that back like this is clearly too far um but you can walk that back um so many steps and you know at what point is it not too far and at what point is it right you know this is just a holistic health center what would it have to be to make burning it down in this way actually appropriate and you know I, i think in any given society at any given moment there's there's certain things where you know if someone was doing something you'd say actually for me that's too far i need to take direct action against that even if that's not appropriate within the kind of legal framework i'm existing in and um, it's yeah. just a question of like what is that and so i guess i've been trying to we're trying to do a few exercises sort of push in my own mind thinking about how people can approach that differently because one way to approach it is to not really think about it and just you know not take it quite so seriously and just rely on your gut instinct and, and be like this is stupid um you Know we should do something about this, um, and I don't think that ne- everybody approaches that kind of decision with the same amount of um, in, in d- deep thought. You know, a lot, a lot of people aren't necessarily, yeah, yeah, yeah. considering that. Um, there's a, a lot of a lot, a lot to be said for instinctual reactions and gut reactions, so so yeah, I was just kind of playing around the edges of that.
0: I, I t- really, I really enjoyed it, and I, I think that it. I think it shows that it was a bit of a, a, a very strong meditation with, while still being an exciting story, uh, which is they're always my sort of favourite ones that we have on this pod. So thank you. Oh, thanks very much. Casey.
1: Got the, the the greatest quality they always say for a short story, which is that I now really want to read it again. <laughs> and lucky me, I get to edit this very soon. So, yeah, true. Yeah. So I do get to hear it again. But to you know to now look at it with Ben's take on it, and you know that's that's hitting the nail on the head to short fiction.
0: <laughs> Very good. Speaking
1: of Ben
3: yeah. and uh,
0: Yes, third and third and final story. Storying you must go. Okay, alright. Let's go for it. Hot sauce. They'd heard him skulking amongst the stacks, and now their sound of their soft call outs to each other were closing in around him. Jason knew that if he crawled to the next aisle and made a break for it, then he might be able to get out alive. He couldn't do that though. Not when it was so close. The mall at the marina had been picked through a long time ago for the canned goods and other non-perishable items. Ransacked would be a better description of the enormous food emporium that had once fed too many people to count. Jason had walked past the large refrigerated aisles that had once held chunks of meat sealed in airtight plastic. He remembered having a burger once when he was very young. The juices of the meat had mixed with the cheese in his mouth and the sharpness of the pickles had made his eyes go wide with wonder. The thought didn't even make him hungry now, it just filled him with angry regret. He considered all those people that had simply consumed every last resource on the planet, seeming without a care for it or what they would leave behind. The global biodiversity catastrophe, though they must have known it was coming, had taken the world by surprise. Jason had once seen an empty pot of honey in a wrecked gas station near the Montana border, on which a small golden bee had been printed. Those creatures had been the first to vanish then the other pollinators, until nothing thrived. Jason risked peeking through the stacks and caught a glimpse of one of the hunters. The man was large, with scars over his bald head. A worn black t-shirt stretched over his powerful back, and Jason saw he had a gun in his hand and a radio on his hip. They were a real unit. He should have known better than to come near good anchorage. There was probably some rich fucker half a click out to sea on a yacht, waiting for these goons to return with supplies. Jason slowly crawled out from his hiding place and looked up at his intended prize. It was a small 60ml glass bottle with a metallic green wrap around its neck. It bore a diamond-shaped white label proclaiming it to be the finest hot sauce to be made in the USA. It was the only thing on the shelf. Countries. They'd fallen apart too. The profiteering politicians who'd run the world into the ground had quickly fled as they realised civilization could no longer sustain itself. Those that had been too slow to flee had met Grizzly ends. Jason had seen one lynching back in Maryland when he was a teenager. They'd strung the representative up and beaten him like a piñata, perhaps hoping a solution to the crisis might fall out of his ruptured flesh. It hadn't. Jason made a grab for the bottle, and as he did so, his worn shoes squeaked on the once-polished industrial flooring. Fuck! The word floated out of his mouth before he could think to stop it. Jason felt the sudden silence of people straining to hear him. He made a break for it, running as fast as he could towards what might have been a bakery or a fishmonger's counter before the fall. He vaulted it, clutching his prize and streaked towards the fire exit. Thick metal chains looped the handle, and they jingled as he bashed the door with his shoulder, but did not budge. He slumped down by the food-grade metal work surface that bakers had likely once rolled out pastries, pitters and pizza bases on, If I have to eat one more spoonful of flavourless, reconstituted ramen, I'm going to drown myself. He said it a million and one times, but the last time, he'd meant it. Survival isn't living, and his memories of the flavour of food taunted him every time he found a safe place to hunker down and eat from his dwindling supplies. Now, the search to taste life again had killed him. Those fuckers would probably eat him, he thought saving the choicest cuts of his lean flesh to be artfully arranged on gilded platters for the chortling elites they served. Maybe they'd even sprinkle his hot sauce on him, too. Bastards. Bastards! Thought Jason. The little squawks of their radios were drawing closer. Jason reckoned they were ex-military from the way they didn't rush him or dismiss him as a threat. These were men who had used their skills to carve out a parasitic and traitorous existence. The trouble was, he wasn't a threat. He didn't have a gun, only a little knife he'd used as a young man to protect himself from the crazed survivors of the initial, global, starvation. Jason looked at the bottle. It was beautiful. And once, it had been among the millions produced in a factory somewhere every day. Now, perhaps it was the last bottle of hot sauce in existence. He broke the perforated plastic seal and twisted the cap off. Mind-boggling aromas of vinegar and spice kicked him in the nose. Those bastards didn't get to have that as well, he thought. Jason put the bottle to his lips and sucked on it, dragging the gloopy red liquid out and filling his mouth. It burned immediately, his mouth, tongue, lips, and throat all engorged with the painful reaction. The flavors of the sauce caused his eyes to flutter up behind his eyebrows, and Jason let out a little moan. He finished the bottle in another gulp and felt the burn travel down into his belly. His eyes filled with tears, and he laughed at the silliness of his end. That's how they found him, giggling and ready for death. Later that night, an attractive middle-aged blonde woman, who had made millions selling unfit-for-purpose protective medical equipment during the pre-starvation pandemics, skewered a slice of Jason from her plate, chewed it, then spat it out onto the deck of her yacht. What have I told you? She screamed at her fearfully cringing chef, I don't like spicy food.
1: I thoroughly enjoyed that, young man. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. Very, very good. Uh, you got you hit a lot of things I like in there. One of them, we don't get enough alliteration these days. Pastries, 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 pitters and pizzas. Mm.
0: What a little like bang, bang, bang trio! Really? Yeah, they call them plosive sounds. I think, don't they? Yes sudden releases of airs yeah i enjoyed that bit it 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 almost that i left that in and i very nearly took it out because it sort of doesn't fit with the the flow of the story um but i liked it so much that i kept it in and that's not usually a good enough reason to leave something in but i'm glad you liked it glad that it stood out for you i mean
2: yeah i noticed that as well i i I like that sort of thing i think it it you know those kind of variations in the in in the, the the Way you're describing the world, and the way you're describing all of it, it, it draws the reader in a little bit more. Also, it felt in keeping with the the narrator to you know that sort of uh rapid-fire, rhyming, almost alliterative way of speaking felt quite similar to this very nervous energy which there is.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's yeah, he's incredibly nervous. Yeah, <laughs> and and angry at the state of the world that he's inherited. I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've got to be angry to chug a bottle of Tabasco, my friend. Yes. Well, that's actually based on something that I did as a child, actually. Oh, God. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I I just moved to, um, I'd moved to Cumbria uh, in sort of, uh, uh, I must have been nine, ten years old, and um, it's a very small community. I mean, it was a tiny school that I moved to, and it's very sort of close-knit community and stuff. And so I didn't I didn't really want to feel like immediately like I was the outsider, so I wanted to find a way to do something ridiculous to just sort of, you know, ha, ah, ta-da, I've arrived, you know, centre of attention stuff. And I chose to drink a bottle of Tabasco in front of people <laughs> as the way of doing it. Um
2: How did that go for you.
0: It actually wasn't that bad. Um it was it was fine. I, I don't remember being too sort of <sighs> ill or anything about anything about it i remember it it, it was very hot but I, it didn't it didn't mess me up or anything so
1: they all agreed when he left the burns ward he'd been very brave <laughs> yeah. and his yeah. assholes sewed back together wonderfully
0: yeah now i have two assholes yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> and one of them is called weego <laughs> very good i think there's a there's, a, there's um, a the ending of this is really good um in terms of it's very funny and also and bleak simultaneously kind of uh, and ties off the picture we have of this world you know all these elites just sailing around raiding the land and and eating poor people um i I mean (laughs) i've I've, in a very sorry i'm going to be a horrible person i'm like my background i'm a biologist by training um
0: (laughs) i think i know what you're about to say go go for it Uh,
2: eating a hot sauce wouldn't make your meat spices. Yeah. yeah. But 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 Hopefully, but so that yeah, immediately yeah. made me think like how would you do that? How what would it make spice? how would you you know, if she's eating his tongue? You know, Potentially, if, she, if she's yeah. eating, you know um, I, I don't I don't know. I I think there's something in there but, but but that's just the sort of thing where it's like it you know, that ending landed really well for me and I really like that line from her. It's fantastic like it's fantastic as well because it, you know, it displays the different um, he's worried about the fact he's never really tasted anything in so long, and mm. she's like, she doesn't want anything, any flavours that are too powerful because she's got yeah. so much. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's really kind of a key moment, but it's just but the disconnect in my mind because of of that not really tracking for me. Um, uh, yeah, but... sure.
0: I, I think I think uh, potentially doing something like I mean I left it in initially because it's just sort of a bit of sort of dramatic irony, really, but. um I think you're right that it could be a bit clearer. So potentially it would make sense for her to be eating his tongue or yeah, yeah. a slice of the inside of his cheek or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. One the tender of the meat on I the inside of his teak,
2: cheek, you know.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, you could, and it's potentially an opportunity for a bit more um a, a, you know to inject a bit more darkness into it oh, as yeah, well. God. So Yeah. No, I think that's a good note. Thank you. And um it's one that I I I fully agree with
1: on the the flavor thing the the section where he is drinking the hot sauce mm. and it's described very similarly to the way that uh, people talk about or describe orgasms in yeah. smutty media. That is perfect. That kind of intensification of because the language does hit those those notes. You know, the eyes fluttering back and
0: mm. yeah,
1: and even using words like it was hot. It, it paints. It's very evocative of that image of of, like, hypersexualized language. So it's, it, it is really, it like, stands out, it like, explodes out of that world where everything's been very kind of grey and horrible and broken. And, and then, yeah, it's especially counterpointed with her being like, this is too spicy. Help me. Too much. I'd, I would also like to suggest a new name for the story. Call it Tabasco Fiasco.
0: Tabasco Fiasco. I like which that. I did write down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, whilst I was writing it, you're just speaking about uh, you know this my early adventures with Tabasco. I was occasionally taking, I was putting a little bit on the back of my hand and looking. Oh, really? From my just to, just oh, to the keep pain the pains you uh... take for your art. I know. I, know. I was uh,
1: eating a load of Cholula while I wrote mine.
2: Were you?
0: Oh yeah. Fantastic.
2: I I were you drinking napalm? No, man? no. <laughs> I, I'm definitely not going to admit to that in uh, any.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do. I do feel oh, like I, I,
2: I. I'm. I'm not. One thing I'm not happy about. I quite like the story I ended up with, but I'm not happy with hitting the theme,
0: um, full on. I think I could have made more of that, but. Yeah. Well, I, I you... think. I think you. I think you landed it. Um, it's very common for us all to do, um, quite different things, and then there to be little links between us. Mm. Um, like we often. Um, I. I don't often write anything very humorous, and really, my ending. That's about as close to humour writing as I get, where it's quite sort of sad. Whilst it's funny. yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas um, Nick is very talent. Nico is very talented at writing um, uh, sort of comedy short stories that really stick in your mind. So we often have very different tonal um, stories. Uh, very stories that are very different tonally. Sorry. They,
1: um, yeah. Possibly the only. I think you do yourself a slight disservice in it because when you're adding in about the sister making the hot sauce at the end. I had assumed that the napalm was like the hottest sauce because
2: it is like a gloopy liquid. Yeah, and... that's, that's that's kind of what I was going for. But um, yeah, I didn't mean to swing back around to my own. I, I just um, I, I was just it, you know the the focus in which you managed to create an entire story around Tabasco is um, I, I love it. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I love hot sauce. That's the reason I went for hot sauce. Is I I,
0: I love um, hot sauce so much and uh, yeah. Um, I was I was glad when you picked it because it's it's just it's always been a big part of my life. Like my my dad used to put um, Tabasco on his uh, on his breakfast, oh, wow. so you would have toast with peanut butter and then dashes of Tabasco on the top. Wow. you were gonna say like it's <laughs> just fucking ruining a bowl of cornflakes? Yeah, little like bowl of muesli with uh, with it's, yogurt it, and to Tabasco. Be fair,
2: it does sound like it's ruining some peanut butter and toast. I've, I've, I've,
0: <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, I would say don't knock it till you tried it, because I actually quite like it, but that might Ooh. just be because I've been conditioned that yeah. way. Stockholm Syndrome. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase.
1: Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun.
0: Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd
1: be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at Bookcase Tiny for updates. <laughs>
3: speaking of supporting the podcast well magic can only take one so far the tiny bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year let's cast a spell for them shall we for uh, Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For Rich Ginger Tones on the Scalp, let's cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for General Fabulousness, why not the your mother spell on Matthew McLaren?
0: How do you come up with that shit man?